hunks of iron and wood fly into the sky as a great explosion rocks the world of the new ironclads. A great hunking iron beast sinks into the sea, never to be seen again, failing to complete its mission, but changing the world forever. This is the Battle of the Ironclads, part four of the Battle of Hampton Roads, with me, Matt. And me, R.C. Welcome to the Cleocast, a history podcast where we talk about historical topics. Go ahead and you can follow us on Twitter at Cleohistory, or send us an email in the description below. And now let's get started. So what are the Hampton Roads exactly? Well, we're going to give you a little description so you can kind of set the scene for yourself before we go into the battle. The Hampton Roads aren't roads like you'd think. They're, it's a bay. It's an estuary. See, there's two rivers, the Elizabeth and the James River on the west side and the south side, respectively, that feed into this little uh, body of water that then feeds into the Atlantic on the east side. There's a place called Sand Spit. And then also on the northern part, Mill Creek with Fort Monroe that kind of formed the mouth. And that's what the Union was blockading. See, the Norfolk Naval Yard is to the south. It's inside where the Elizabeth River is. And it's kind of a protected little like cove estuary that's very hard to get into. And on the north, that's where Hampton itself is, which is a town. And it's a lot more open to the sea so the union had set up right at the mouth so ships can't actually get in or out but the hampton roads themselves were too large to really be effectively blockaded as you know the major confederate naval yards were right there the james river to the west feeds into richmond if you follow it long enough that's why it was important for the south is it's the main channel where richmond can get to the sea Norfolk is on the Elizabeth River to the south, as we said, and it's the main naval yard where the Virginia is currently moored. Up by Hampton, that's where the naval conflict we just talked about last week took place. The Minnesota is currently beached. The Monitor is currently coming in by Fort Monroe, and that's where the Cumberland and Congress were destroyed. Now, there's still two ships left other than the Minnesota, the Roanoke and the St. Lawrence, but they weren't really that big or important enough for the Virginia to focus upon. Besides, there's a new target coming to town anyways. As the day concludes with the CSS Virginia creating its massive destruction in its wake, the Monitor is entering the scene in Hampton Roads. But we're going to take a quick break to describe the naming conventions of the CSS Virginia, or the Merrimack. People hear the battle described as the Monitor versus the Merrimack. But the crew of what you think of as the Merrimack would have called the CSS Virginia. This is just a simple debate between naming conventions like Bull Runner Manassas. Are you a Confederate who takes Confederate naming conventions, or are you going to stick with the old Union naming conventions? Our main source for this podcast, Iron Dawn by Richard Snow, goes into a little discussion about this. The ship was originally christened as the Merrimack, either with the C only or with the K, yet another little naming issue of how do you spell Merrimack, but... 
it's bad luck to change the name of a ship. And the CSS Virginia being rechristened from the Merrimack is, you know, bad luck, but also Confeder- the Confederacy lost. So, really, it was just Merrimack burned down to a hole and used by rebels of an unrecognized state. But the people who served on it would have called it the CSS Virginia. So, it is up to you to decide what you would call this ship in the battle. But this is, in our opinion, as a podcast, the battle between the Monitor and the Merrimack. As the Monitor enters Hampton Roads, you have to understand that the crew has been through a lot. This ship is only a foot above the waterline, and they had massive issues with the venting of their engines. So the crew has been suffering carbon dioxide poisoning and nearly sinking. This ship is very hard to see, even in open waters and calm waters. So it's just like a little turret floating above the water that's only about seven or eight feet tall, and it's a very small turret in general. So the Merrimack went back to port at the end of the battle on March 8th as the Monitor entered the scene. But as the day of March 9th dawned, CSS Virginia, known as the Merrimack from now on in this podcast, chugged back out to take on the USS Minnesota. And they see this little piece of metal right by the Minnesota. Confused and unaware of what this is, they keep chugging. Maybe they tried to put down a little iron shield. Maybe the Minnesota was up to something weird. But as the Merrimack chugged closer and closer and closer a little metal dot started rotating out and they could see the bores of a cannon. As the Merrimack approached the Minnesota and saw the strange craft, they at first thought it was just them salvaging the engines, you know. Overnight they were trying to scrap the Minnesota and rescue what they could, the boilers being the most important part. But soon, as the Monitor began to move towards them to intercept them, they realized this was, in fact, a ship, and they weren't, in fact, running away. The crew began joking, you know, there was a cheese on a raft or a tin can on a shingle, because, to be fair, the Monitor does kind of look a bit ridiculous. The Merrimack soon opened a magnificent salvo as the Monitor refused to turn back, and as the smoke cleared, most of the shots missed because of how low the monitor was into the short sea line. After the first broadside from the Merrimack opened on monitor, the crew of the monitor was surprised. The first battle of the Ironclads, and they, they're fine. They're secure, and a bit of confidence rushes through these men who have gone through a very rough travel from New York down to the Hampton Roads. They rush up to the turret, rotated around, aiming it dead at the center of the Merrimack, and unload those two guns, and nothing happens. It simply bounces off. So what is the monitor to do? (laughs) Well, simply reload another shot and fire again, and it bounces off again. And they face another broadside from the Merrimack, which does land on the turret, but dense, but no, no damage. No major damage. So, it's just 
well, enough effort. We got to put more effort into this. Loading the guns, loading the guns, loading the guns, firing the two small cannons at the Merrimack, and nothing really seems to be done. The Merrimack, as we talked about last episode, is incredibly unmaneuverable. It's 700 tons of iron on a barely working engine. So it's able to kind of do lazy circles, but the monitor is completely controlling the pace in terms of the engagement. It's able to maneuver at will around the Merrimack, but the Merrimack is just a giant hunk of metal. I mean, the cannons, they can't find a weak spot anywhere. And as much as they maneuver, the Virginia is still able to get shots off. So this trend continues. They're just circling, doing, you know, the monitors doing tighter circles. The Merrimack's basically just going in one big circle, firing at each other. You know, you hear bing, bings, the shots bounce off the metal. You know, they're expending hundreds of shells. The monitor is completely able to run circles around the Merrimack. Just like a sprinter running around just a very slow, lazy, fat man. But nothing can be done. It's just a big stalemate, but there's a slight issue. The monitor has a tiny pilot house with glass so the captain can see. And the Merrimack lands one lucky shot, smashing the glass and bending the iron, causing the pilot house to collapse in. The crew of the monitor panics. This is the first major damage done to their ship. So they rush up to see their captain, and he's he lives. He suffers a few injuries, but he lives, and that's it. They aren't able to see, so their maneuverability is a bit less great, but the monitor is still intact and has a living captain, and the pilot house is broken, but the monitor can still move and still get around. The Virginia, on the other hand, is uh, covered in dents and uh, full of smoke, but also perfectly fine. With the pilot house damage on the monitor, they begin to pull back, but they also see a massive plume of smoke puffing out the Virginia. They think that there's something that they've done to really drive the Virginia away, but really the Virginia is just trying to get their engines to work and get movement. So the Virginia sees the monitor pulling away, thinking, you know, oh, we won. The monitor sees the Virginia in a plume of smoke also chugging away, and like, oh, we won. Really, it was just a stalemate, but both sides walk away, slightly dented, but believing they have achieved the victory for their side in the great battle of the Ironclads. So what was the result of this three-hour engagement between the first Ironclads to actually fight another Ironclad? Well, it was largely inconsequential. I mean... Other than the captain of the monitor getting injured and the pilot house being destroyed, there was no real, like, ship-ruining damage to either ship. They both left thinking that they were the victor, and that was it. It seems largely inconsequential, and to the war itself, it was also fairly inconsequential. I mean, the blockade remained, neither ship was destroyed in this conflict, and, you know, the status quo really didn't move at all. But this is a big event for one particular reason, which is, even though not much changed, it did change the landscape of naval warfare. You see, for hundreds of years, it was 
You build your ships out of wood, and then cannons beat them. So what do you do? You just get more cannons, because you just have to be the first to get your salvo off and have enough of a salvo to shink the ship first. That's it. That's how the chess game goes. But now, now that these have been proven to work, all of a sudden, you can beat cannon. You can fire off a salvo, and the ship will not even be damaged. It changes the entire landscape and how ships are made. All of a sudden, your wooden vessels, you know, like take the British, for example, the greatest fleet on the high seas, completely obsolete. One ironclad can sink, as we saw, two ships and not even have a scratch. You know, imagine what five could do against a hundred wooden ships. That's where the real importance of this event is. It's not in the event itself. It's just in the broader ramifications of what it meant for the world and for naval powers. That's the lesson you can take from this thing. Although this battle really was just a waste of time for both ironclads, this was a uh, propaganda war as well. The Monitor leaving the battle became instant Union heroes, where the Union newspapers posted about the Monitor's great victory, which was more of just a stalemate. But the Monitor is now famous. Everyone in the Union knows of the Monitor, there's little models of the monitor being made. Newspapers are creating pictures. And John Erickson and all of the monitor crew, instant American heroes. And they are treated to luxury accommodations in D.C. They get parties. They have massive events for the crew of the monitor. And it's just... It puts in hope. This is the early part of the Civil War. The Union is losing, some would say, pretty badly. There is massive upset. It's only 1862. This is pre-Gettysburg, pre-March of the Sea. All they know is quite a lot of losses in Virginia, and D.C. has been a decent threat. But now there is something that can stop the Confederate tide on the ocean. So... This is a little bit of good in a bad part of the war. And the Union runs with it. Nowadays, it's pretty obvious the South was you know, screwed from the beginning of the war. They, they did not have the industrial capacity. They did not have the population. They did not have the trade with foreign powers. They just had no way to actually win the war, you know, defeat the North. But... What they did have, especially at this point in 1862, was the ability to make the North quit. See, the North had been pushing to Richmond this whole time, and then Stonewall Jackson does a big push into the North that scares the hell out of everyone up there and makes them pull back their forces, stopping the war from ending in 1862. So they, the Northerners were kind of like, you know, they could be pushed, they could quit the war. It's kind of like a American Revolution where the British were going to win, you just have to make them not want to fight anymore. You know, that was the only way the South could win. So that's why this is big in propaganda terms, is it made them, it made the rest of the North kind of realize, hey, look, here's a victory, here's a solid victory, you know, that we obviously won, that we can latch on to as how we're going to win the war. You know, we have this super weapon, the Monitor, and it kind of helped the spirit of the war keep going. Because, remember, the North just had to quit. That's all the South was aiming for. Just quit. Just stop fighting. Let us go. 
And now you had something that was going to keep the North fueled for the long haul. With the CSS Virginia, also known as the Merrimack, pulling away, the Confederate newspapers and the Confederate people, the Confederate government, celebrated a great victory and a great propaganda victory for the Confederacy. Stephen Mallory was super excited to tell President Davis about the victory of the CSS Virginia, defeating the Monitor and making the Monitor drive away from the Hampton Roads. The population of the South got this great victory on the sea where they feel like they've been losing, blocked out from trade, blocked out from being able to really get control of their freedom from the ocean, grip of the Union Navy, and they feel like, oh, hey, we won a battle. Even though it was a stalemate, we won a battle on the sea. Because you see the South up to this point, at least the average Southerner, They'd just been seeing nothing but defeat on the sea, right? Because the Union has the Navy. They have all the power. They have the blockade that's strangling them. So now the South's able to see, hey, we sunk two ships, and we forced the North's super weapon to turn back, turn tail, and run. This is a great victory. You know, this is the morale boost that keeps us going. As Stonewall Jackson's pushing into Maryland and the attack on Richmond is failing, you know, the average Southerner thinks, hey, we're going to win this thing. You know, look at this. We got control of the sea now and control of the land, and the North just keeps losing, losing, losing. We may not have the industrial capacity or the population or foreign trade anymore, but, you know, because we can take guns from every battle we win because we're winning every battle, you know. We may not be able to produce them, but we can take them from the North. And a lot of the uh, viewpoint of the Southerners was that they were the uh, new American Revolution, you know. They were just like the revolutionaries fighting against Britain in 1776 and they were going to win it just like they did you know the scrappy underdogs because to be fair to them they were winning a lot of the land battles the north was basically you know too cautious they they didn't really want to fight and uh, that's why this was a big deal for them you know it was an ironclad victory that they could grasp onto as a clear victory for the south so the issue with this is there's also a land war and George McClellan started you know invading the area where the Hampton Roads were and with the Union movement up closer to Richmond around that time the Union Navy also started pushing more and more so the South had not a lot of options for their new wonder weapon the Merrimack so in May, two months after the Battle of Hampton Roads, they decided to scuttle it. And by scuttle it, they gave it a massive explosion, which ended the life of the Merrimack, or the CSS Virginia, for good. It blowing up and being sunk down into the bay. So that left the Monitor as the last ironclad of this Battle of Hampton Roads. But the Monitor would suffer a similar fate. As it was moving to help this Union blockade of the South, it was moving in open waters, which, as we've talked about before, it's only about a foot above the water line, and it filled with water and began to sink. The sinking of the Monitor was the last remnant of this little battle that changed history. But... That isn't the end of ships like the Monitor. The Monitor 
is an entire class of ships that the Union Navy started building. They started building a lot of ironclads, even one that would sail all the way up the Mississippi to help fight at Vicksburg with Grant. And the name Monitor would live on for a good portion of naval history, meaning a small iron ship with a small rotating turret. But iron ships are now on the scene, and the age of sail is, it's safe to say that it's gone. And this little battle in a little bay called Hampton Roads would in our opinion as a podcast, this is going to get into a little bit of uh, historical theory, lead to World War One. You see, with the inclusion of iron ships, the British had had some already, right? But this was the first proving ground, the first conflict between two. And seeing how effective they were, not only against each other, but against wooden boats, it was clear now that they were the future. They weren't just novelties but they were the way naval ships were going. So there was somewhat of an arms race between the European powers. You know, Whoever had the most ships would win. The British had always had a long-standing policy of having their fleet be as large as the next two combined, like the next two countries' fleets. See, now all of a sudden, all of their wooden ships being completely obsolete kind of messed with that a little bit. So they suddenly had to go on a mass building spree. This allowed the Germans, the Americans, and the French to slowly catch up as they were all starting from a level playing field. But with these ironclads, you could at least put iron plates over your ships, much like the Merrimack was constructed. So it wasn't that big of a differential quite yet. After the Franco-Prussian War, though, in like around the early 20th century, the dreadnought was invented. And this was such a monumental change in naval technology. You know, imagine, you know, battleships, like you think, just completely made of iron, giant guns, giant thick plates of iron, and they made everything before them obsolete. They were the ship that your Navy had to have if it was going to win. The British invented them, but in doing so, they also made their entire fleet obsolete yet again, much like they did with the ironclads. But this time, these dreadnoughts were incredibly expensive to build. You can't just slap iron plates on a wooden boat. You have to construct this from scratch. It takes a lot of man hours and a lot of resources. This posed a problem again because, you know, the British have to have as big a fleet as the next two countries combined. And Germany is now on the scene. And the Germans want to be a major power. They want to have colonies. They want to have, you know, prestige. And how do you do that? Well, you build a navy. That's what the British do, and they're kings of the world. So the British are slowly bankrupting themselves, and this naval arms race is heating up, and the British, seeing the Germans as the new kids on the block and threats to their power, decide to ally with the French, and that's how you start to get the alliance system that leads to World War I. Granted, there are other factors that led to it, but I think that this one is a major contributor. So there's the HMS Warrior. That is the British ship that predated uh, these ironclads that fought in Hampton Roads. But the issue, if you look at the HMS Warrior, it was an iron hull, but it still had masts. And it didn't really have the shape that was would be known as a battleship. If you look at the Merrimack and the Monitor, they are weird looking, but they have more of a shape of a modern battleship. And it basically jumped what would be the common idea of a ship from these big sails are having masts into building these iron warships that are 
sleeker. And this changed naval warfare, but also it just... But without this weird little battle, you would not have the HMS Dreadnought. You would not have a naval arms race. This is something that needs to be included when you talk about the history of naval warfare and the, the dreadnought of what it is you have to understand where it came from because the dreadnought was built 40 years after this little battle in a lifespan of a normal adult in that time you could have been born in the battle of hampton roads and then see a ship that basically was the form of a modern battleship you would think of today and that is an extremely quick development. We'd like to thank you for listening to this four-part series on the Battle of Hampton Roads. We've been the Cleocast. We'll have a different series up soon, or one-off episodes. But we'd like to do a little bit of sourcing right now. Our main source for this episode and series was Iron Dawn by Richard Snow fantastic read and we highly suggest it but we've also used a few other resources between resources on the internet that we found through wikipedia and whatnot but we also have atlas of the civil war by james mcpherson we have people's history of the civil war by david williams and we have the civil war by bruce Carlton. if you are looking for some good books just go ahead and check these out uh, they are on multiple different websites if you want to do it in audio form or digital form or I highly suggest supporting your local bookstore and going out and picking one up because small businesses do need support. Anyways, that's going to be all for us this week. Uh, go ahead and join us next week for whatever topic we end up deciding on. If you have any suggestions, you can go and email us at corecasters at gmail.com uh, or follow us on Twitter at Clio History. All those links are probably in the description somewhere. Uh, yeah, I think our DMs are open. Uh, so you can go ahead and DM us if you want. Uh, yeah, follow us on wherever you get podcasts and thank you for listening.